welcome to Las Doctoras podcast. Led by our intuition, we are creating space for conversations, asking critical questions, and interrogating the oppressive systems of power we live in. We are your hosts. I am Dr. Renee Limas, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a Cancer sun and moon with Pisces rising, mother of water. I am Dr. Christina Rose, pronouns she, they, Virgo sun, Aquarius moon, Gemini rising, mother of earth. We are grounded in a connection to ancestral wisdom. Our work is to heal the wounds of generational trauma that is of white male and cis hetero supremacy, all while we create a way of being that celebrates, truly revels in the joy of our families and our community. Join us on our journey, not toward perfection, but into reflection, immersed in compassionate self-awareness and courageous action. Come, sit at our kitchen table, sip on some tequila with us, and let's change our world. Salud! Hello! Welcome, welcome to... Welcome to Las Doctoras Podcast, episode something. (laughs) We're we're in season Season four. Season four, episode two of season four. Yeah, season four, episode two, for sure. And we are happy to have some guests. We haven't had guests in in quite a while, so we're really excited. Um, And I think... We're just going to let you all introduce yourself and then we'll, yeah, I think, I think your introduction will tell a little bit about really what we're going to be talking about. Um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Thank you for okay. being here. Thank you so much for having us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I'll go first. Um, uh, my name is Tita, Tita Beatty, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm an American born daughter of mm. Thai immigrants. And my parents came from Thailand in the mid to late 60s after the passing of the Hart uh, Immigration Act of 1965. So they were part of this wave um, coming from Thailand um, of immigrants into this country. And I found some documentation that um, my father came first and he was a physician. And he came as part of a a U.S. government recruiting program. And this documentation that I found uh, was just kind of like the numbers of people who were coming out of Thailand at that time. And he came over as part of a cohort of like 200 doctors. Wow. Um, Wow. And I was just like, wow, I can't even imagine. I I just can't imagine like that number and the community Mm -hmm. around that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I am uh, I'm an end of life doula. Mm. and a community educator, as well as a grief activist. Mm. Um, And I'm a co-founder of MESO with my business partner, who's also here, uh, So Yun. So I'll just turn it over to her so she can also introduce herself. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, Yes, thank you. Thank you for that, Tita. And thank you, Las Doctores, for having us. Um, So I am Soyan Davis. Um, I am, uh, I was born in Korea, raised in America. Uh, My family immigrated here in 1974. Mm -hmm. Um, So my parents actually um, immigrated in their late 30s, which is, I think, unusual at that time. Um, And my, my dad got a special I would say at that time it was a special visa because he was part of the Korean American um, service. He had worked as a civilian under the U.S. military base there. And at that time in 74, they, the U.S. had offered uh, special, I guess, invitations to those who worked with the military to uh, come across the United States. Um, my dad served as basically like a mechanic for the base service, and that, that was his skill set. Um, and then that's how we came over. Um, I, the interesting story for us was that originally we were supposed to end up in DC because that's where the job offering was. But uh, through his previous friends who had actually arrived here, they told him working for the government at that time in 74 was not very. I guess, financially stable. (laughs) Um, So they said, you should just 
actually like decline that and think about a business to start. So my, Mm -hmm. we actually went from uh, heading to DC. We actually, but ended up in Kansas, Manhattan, Kansas, in the middle (laughs) of the United States. Manhattan, Kansas. Wow. Um, it was a six months there. We landed, we came from Seoul. So uh, I have two older brothers and myself, and we were sort of like, this is America. <laughs> because it was like <laughs> cornfields, you know, we were like the New York City. Yeah. LA. Um, so it, we were there like temporarily for about six months. Um, uh, things sorted out, and it, we ended up actually in Detroit, Michigan. And mm. that's where my parents started their sort of. Um, small business. My, my father had a gas station for many years. And, um, after about 20 years, I would say, yeah, about, I guess, 15 to 20 years of doing gas stations, then they ended up doing a, a laundromat. So mm-hmm. it is the hardworking kind of a blue collar kind of small business. Um, mm-hmm. was yeah. how I was raised. So, um, now I, and my parents are still alive. They are elderly. They're close to their nineties. Um, so, um, that's how I actually come into this space because of sort of recognizing the frailty of them and also, mm-hmm. um, what aging has confronted them with, which is a lot of, um, uh, disability of mobility, especially for people who have been really active in their lives. So mm-hmm. I am also a trained end of life doula. And mm-hmm. as Tita had mentioned, um, coming in with that was our partnership, Tita and my partnership into, uh, creating Meso for, really supporting immigrant families in this space. Renee and I were talking just about how timely this conversation is, given um, that we are on October 1st is our day of recording. We have um, just a season when the veil is thin between us and the spirit world. And um, we are also reflecting on our beloved dead and our um, the people who have gone on before us. And so this, this is just feels amazing to have you here in this time. I also want to say how lovely it is to have people of Asian descent with us. I don't, I I don't know if that like resonates with you. You know, um, my mother's family is Latinx, but my father's family is Filipino. And um, when I mention things like war brides or different, like different government acts, um, there is not a lot of resonance, um, except within like people of Asian descent. And so it feels just so familiar, these stories, um, and also how different they are as well. Um, so thank you so much for being here. And thank you for the work that you're doing in Meso. I think it's, it's so important to, um, to both of us. Yeah, and I, I want to say how I just want to name how we all got connected Um, because I think I love, I love origin stories. (laughs) And um, so you two, we both are in a community because of June, June McKay uh, taking her, uh, her course. And uh, I think there was a question about partnerships and Christine and I having been in a partnership now, you know, business creative partnership for, Three years. We'll be celebrating three years. Gonna do <laughs> something. Soon. You know. Um. And so yeah. So we were in. You know, we got connected. You know, answering some questions for you all, and then hearing what you all do, it was. It just felt so like wow. Like, yeah. I can't. I don't know what the feeling was other than just like yeah, yeah. Like everything you were saying just made so much sense to us in terms of what you do. Um, I think both having experienced the loss of somebody, um, you know, my father passed away. It'll be seven years <clears throat> this November. Um, and Christina as well lost her grandma right within the last five years. Yeah, my abuelos um, passed within the last, I guess, seven years. My 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 abuela in the last like few years. Um, and my yeah. Lola died when, my, when I was nine, you know, so there's just like a long, long story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so just hearing what you all do and then doing it from that perspective of um, having your deep grounding in your culture, right. And, and a cultural understanding of death and all of that. So it was just like, yes, yes, let's have this conversation. It felt so timely. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, just, yeah, very much in sync with where, where we are at, you know, personally. So, 
tell us, um, I'm like, what did, what did we say we were going to talk about? <laughs> I'm like, tell, I, I think we just really oh, want to create space for hearing what it is that you all do. Um, I think, I think you're, you are, there's a need, right? There is this mm-hmm. need. Um, you said, you said end of life doula and you said something else, grief, something you were naming what you do. What did you say, Tita? Yeah. End of life doula, uh, community educators, as well as grief, grief activists. 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 Oh, grief that's what activists. it is. Yeah. Like, so tell us, tell us, yeah, yeah, tell, yeah, us yeah. tell us what that's about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, much of our work uh, as individuals, as well as what we're creating here with MESO, is really a product, of course, of our lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that that resonates for you as well. And uh, let me just share a little bit about my own parents is that uh, in 2019, both my father and my mother, uh, they died. And my father, mm-hmm. he passed away of um, like chronic health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, you know, it's just all of it. Mm-hmm. It just eventually took him down in addition to Parkinson's. Um, so his was like a long, slow decline. And then five weeks later, my mother, um, she died unexpectedly, uh, completely different circumstances. And I believe of a catastrophic heart attack. Um, Mm. so I'm the oldest, uh, of two. And whereas my brother, I mean, he was, he was supportive and and he was definitely there, but as the oldest, Mm -hmm. um, I had different responsibilities. Um, some of those responsibilities, um, I just didn't really, I didn't step into until they died. Um, and, you know, that was more around like legality of things, like funereal things, mm. whatnot, as well as my own grief, bereavement. Mm. Um, but some of those responsibilities, too, were actually present before they died in, in the form of cultural issues and the approach towards aging and illness. Um, end of life, dying, death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after they did pass, um, for me, I was looking for resources uh, for my own grief, to support my own grief, to understand mm-hmm. it. But I just remember Googling something <laughs> like, how do immigrants die in America? And then <laughs> like, I found all kinds of stuff that honestly just didn't speak to me at all Um, it was so it was weird because I mean quite frankly like through like a lot of journalism I you know I I was I was learning about um, like a lot of different kinds of issues at that time this was uh, you know in 2019 and like with Trump and all that so there was so much around like deportation and ICE Mm -hmm. and you know brutality around that Um, and so that was that was kind of one narrative. But then in terms of finding out things in like research, um, research seemed a little bit, you know, a little bit removed and more kind of like ivory tower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of policy, there, there just there wasn't necessarily a lot of policy that seemed helpful around mm-hmm. these kinds of issues. Um, and so it dawned on me that what I was really looking for was to I wanted to hear real stories, like mm. of real people, um, and to understand from, you know, again, like someone else's lived experience, perhaps within community, some kind of sharing like that, so that I might be able to understand more about my own experience, but yet finding really like nothing, nothing like that. Um, so it just so happened that Soyeon and I, we were we were talking um, like at like I don't know like a kid's birthday party or something like that, and found out that our paths were actually crossing for for very different reasons. That I was I was showing up in my bereavement, um, and Soyeon, um, you know, was showing up in uh, what's called an anticipatory grief or prospective grief. Oh yeah, and that for us we came to realize that a partnership might be, uh, might be meaningful, um, not mm-hmm. one, because of the notion of being able to deliver perhaps more culturally sensitive 
culturally appropriate, culturally relevant resources um, mm. to marginalized and underserved populations. And how do we know that? Because that's our experience. Yeah. Um, and so we actually now come to represent like two very different aspects of what is a full spectrum of grief mm. from starting with anticipatory grief, which quite frankly is not talked about, is not really, is, is just not really out there, you know, yeah. just in, in terms of understanding and presence to this notion of disenfranchised grief, which is very, very much the case for, for I don't wanna just say, you know, for immigrant communities, not necessarily disenfranchised grief is grief that's just not addressed or recognized by society at large, which, which quite frankly is just grief. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then like to, you know, the full spectrum of where I am in terms of bereavement, bereavement specifically meaning grief around the loss of, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, someone that you love of a person. But as we all know, and we've seen on a global scale now with COVID for so long, that there are mm-hmm. so many different kinds of losses. Um, mm-hmm. we, we tend to think of loss um, in terms of the people that we love, but in terms of like the kinds of losses that can affect us, the spectrum of that is, is so much wider. And grief is not, is, is really just a reaction. It's a natural reaction to loss. And so how we have come to learn how to process that has not really been that robust, I would say for everybody, but then particularly for underserved and marginalized communities. What I would say in terms of my own immigrant family experience and what I've learned, we don't have any model. Mm. And so Soyeon and I, we want to change that. Mm-hmm. Oh my <sighs> goodness. <laughs> There's so much emotion that's coming up for me in this moment Mm -hmm. and thinking about um, these levels of or stages of grief or I don't I don't I don't know cycles of grief something some kind of language around that and how much that resonates with my experience and having my um, abuelos pass and leading up to it the moment of their passing and then after and still Renee and I talk still much about our bereavement really Mm And also um, how the language you're using is so shockingly different than that um, that, that, that I experienced um, within my family, within my, my community and within like my religious upbringing and everything like that. It's just like this great disconnect there. And I, um, yeah, as you're talking, it feels like great healing already. Um, I, I was saying it feels so affirming because um, when my father passed away, it was like kind of a shock. It was, there was no anticipation around it at all. Um, and I had some sense of the idea of like the seven stages of, of um, grief. Of grief. Um, definitely now I'm like, oh yeah, that was denial and that was anger. <clears throat> but at the time, um, this is retrospective, you know, at the time, I, I don't know, there were, yeah, yeah, the emotions were just, you know, I don't know, I, I felt a sense of responsibility as well. I'm not the oldest, but I am the only daughter. Um, mm. So I feel like there's something in that. Um, so when you were saying, I was like, responsibilities, that's immediately what I took on. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of my own, giving me myself, giving myself space to grieve it was like oh no I gotta step in and take on all these responsibilities and I have to care for my mother now who lost her husband right like so I kind of put my stuff to the side so um yeah I just feel like a lot of the language you're using feels so affirming because at the time I was like you know just like I don't I don't know or or I felt like there was a timeline on you know what I can you know how much I could grieve and um so yeah, all of this, I'm like anticipatory grief and disenfranchised and grief. I mean, it just, it feels very, very affirming. So I think again, that's why we're like, yes, this is, we need to be talking about this. Yeah. If I could just add, I think um, that has been, I have to say personally, that's been my process is to have these words and to have this language, mm-hmm. right. As Tita um, so eloquently said, it's, it's space that we've never had. And partly it's even just, uh, I think initially it was just us being Asian identifying obviously, and, um, having gone through the pandemic and certainly all of the, all of the anti-Asian hate that has mm. really, um, mm. unpacked some of our invisibility and unspokenness. 
and I think, and even as we we thought about this being grief activists, that's why um, the reason why that came about was because we recognized that there is no grief in sort of our particular community of eight, you know, there is no spokenness about it or acknowledgement about it or words or language that we can even speak to it. So we don't even know how to like engage in it, I think, right? It's, a, mm-hmm. it's not a space that existed. And I think that was part of certainly understanding that it was, it was our community, but also in the broader community of immigrants, um, right? Just of knowing all the experiences. I think there is this general grief but on top of that general grief, there's so many multitude of layers, such as Tita had mentioned about disenfranchised grief, racialization, and all mm. of that. And those those layers are so thick that it's really painful. And I think part of what I recognized in thinking about my parents was, um, you know, as trained end of life doulas, the, the notion is at the end of life, what we've come to understand is most people suffer with is the unemotional kind of unaddressed issues. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and knowing that I, I recognize um, sort of thinking about my parents' immigrant experience, and even my own, because um, mm-hmm. I came here as five years old, and sort of all the discrimination and racism, racialization that I had also experienced as a child. But what has that impacted me and thinking mm-hmm. about my parents and their end of life care, and how that might um, certainly be uh, certainly arise at their end if, if it's not spoken of or right mm-hmm. addressed mm-hmm. and I think sort of all of that compounded really made us really think about like well what can we first do and we have to be able to speak about it and tell our stories about it like mm-hmm. and um and so I think that sort of really activated us like how do we create a space that didn't exist before. Really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do we how do we get people? How do we encourage our communities, whether it's Asian or immigrants, right? People of the global majority to like, um, we need to create our own spaces for us, not not yes. in the spaces of the dominant culture. Yeah. Yes. And um, really recognizing that we, you know, we have the power to create our resources, um, and that's what we. But we have to do that in solidarity for sure, because I think yes. if we just you know focus on one area. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like so much. Um, so much. <laughs> so I'm much, like, I'm uh, taking down notes and I'm like, I just want to ask so many questions. Yeah, I think something that comes up for me is um, like the unspokenness of mm-hmm. it. Um, I think the unspokenness because of the fear, uh, like when my father passed away, people didn't want to make me cry or they didn't want to make my mother cry. So they kind of avoided just like talking about it. And I was, and I actually had to like, you <laughs> know, this was funny when my, when I baptized my son and we had this big baptism and I told my whole family, I need you all to tell stories of my father, even if it makes us cry, we need to talk about him because my youngest never got to meet him. I was like, I need him to have a connection. And it's through, you know, like I had to tell my family, like, it's okay to make us cry. Those cries are not, or those tears are not tears of pain. I mean, they are pain, but like, it's okay, but it's so uncomfortable for people to sit in that. Um, So just to even make space for that. And I think that's, I think that's a good conversation to have of, of why are we, and maybe in your experience, you know, mm-hmm. in your communities, the uncomfortableness around mm-hmm. grief, like where I'm sure you all have, have, you know, articulated, like where that comes from, why that happens, you know, why are we not talking about grief? And I want to say too, because our like I think like our cultures and we have come from so many different ones all have longstanding traditions of honoring the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, and so is it, is it an, an assimilation, you know, a sense of, we don't want to, you know, you know, rock any, we, don't, we just want to fit into this, you know, like, yeah, my Lola ended up in Missouri, right? Like, so like just imagining her in Missouri after world war two, um, just this need to assimilate. And yet we're bringing back traditions of remembering, you know, Dia de los Muertos and different things like that. And the other thought that occurred to me was, I think this is so important to me and to us because in the passing of these um, fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, these ancestors being um, 
first, second, you know, generation here in the US, it is a, if we do not remember them and Mm -hmm. their, their passing and their life, then we are losing our culture at the same Mm -hmm. time, you know, um, just so many thoughts like this, (laughs) so many layers, (laughs) um, would love, would love. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, yeah, I think that the why, you know, why is, why is it so unspoken? Um, which I think Christina getting to that, like assimilation, colonization, that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. And the, like, how do we get back to really a lot of our ancestral cultures and their, and, you know, their understanding culture bearers, right. We're culture bearers. That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that that's a fantastic, fantastic observations as well as questions. And I think that part of that is um, like, as I, as I was trying to reflect on the notion of culture um, and the intersection of it with grief, um, I can only look at it from, again, my lived experience uh, from like my immigrant family's culture. And so in terms of my parents coming um, and, and in spite of the fact that like my dad was recruited, like none of that mattered. He ended up in like a, a rural part of Maryland and we were the only Asian family for just, I don't know, like ever. <laughs> um, um, and that basically led to a situation where um, like the, the nearest community was probably about an hour away by car. It wasn't accessible on a daily basis. And so our family became, you know, really like it's it very much its own, just like nuclear unit. Like we're mm. it. Um, mm. And in terms of this notion of like, you know, my mom and my dad relying on each other, but also relying on the kids and the kids relying mm. on the parents. I mean, it was, we, we were it. Yeah. Um, and I think really that that experience and, you know, living um, again as, as the only Asian representative um, in a, in amongst the, you know, very, very dominant culture situation for years. And my parents, I mean, they died there. So, I mean, it was, it was, they, they were there for like their entire, like 50 plus years here in America. Wow. But what did that create? In my mind, as I reflect now, I think that this is part of, uh, it's potentially part of some immigrant family experiences um, where, you know, you, one may be um, disconnected mm-hmm. um, and fractured. And that disconnection and that fracture, that fractal, um, it, it leads to perhaps, you know, disconnection from culture such that um, for somebody like me, I would say that quite frankly, like I'm American first, mm-hmm. not necessarily identifying with being, you know, Thai or Chinese first. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I physically have the characteristics, but in terms of like my cultural identity, mm-hmm. it's American. And whereas I recognize that I am like, you know, the daughter of immigrant parents, I would say that I'm ignorant of like practice, ritual, belief, mm-hmm. because that's not part of the American way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, I would say that at least in terms of my family, again, them being disconnected from their own homeland, you know, they came and then effectively their orientation, at least of their own culture, their own selves is now it's like a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. Like who they were effectively as like a Thai person is who they were when they left in 1965. Wow. Because wow. they also, like, they, didn't, they didn't have enough money to go back often enough mm-hmm. to keep up with the way that that country mm-hmm. has evolved. Mm. And so in terms of this notion of like Bardos, like we talked about Bardos before, like let's get into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of like these liminal spaces, you know, being in between, I mean, how many of us, you know, like how many of us code switch between how many kinds of different cultures all mm. the time? Yeah. And so I would say that at least for my immigrant family and, and when I was looking for those resources, you know, in terms of my bereavement, trying to understand what just happened, holy shit, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it was like, I didn't find any, why? Because we don't have models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, we don't have models of language. 
we don't necessarily have models of culture. We don't have models yeah. of like maybe like a new practice. And I don't want to say like an assimilated practice or an acculturated practice. No, not that. Mm. Yeah. But in terms of this notion of maybe the creation of like a third culture or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, there's no, there's, there's nothing that is robust enough to handle mm. that when you come to like mm. aging, perhaps mm-hmm. illness, end of life, death, dying, grieving, survivorship. Those are mm-hmm. all big, big things. Mm-hmm. Not and, to mention like whitewashed, appropriated yes, grief, yes, you know, yes, ceremonies yes, of other people, you know, yes, of our cultures, yes, right? Yes, like, yeah, mm, and spirituality, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that part of really like some of it may be cultural in terms of like, you know, not talking about it, but some of it is literally systemic silencing, no, systemic God. erasure, systemic division. So you know, when you talk about um, the notion of like our first, our second generations or whatnot, being the connection, being the closest to the bridge mm-hmm. and that, you know, if they pass and we don't get their stories or whatever it is, mm-hmm. then that is gone. I would say that's deliberate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's another layer of loss. Right. Because you were mm-hmm. talking about the different types mm-hmm. of loss. And so like, now you're not just grieving the loss of physical family, but the loss of any sort of connection to culture and what that means. Oh, my God. And it's I mean, definitely it's deliberate, of course, you know, of course, 100 percent. Yeah, they. I mean, it's. American, <laughs> right? American, um, and but but in truth, I I, I mean I think that there is the, the, how we look that DNA that we have been gifted helps us to remember. You know, I think I think this is, or even if like let's say the DNA didn't help us remember, certainly um, white presenting white privileged Americans help us remember that we're not, you know, <laughs> that we're not them, <laughs> that we're not them. You know, um, there is um, a lot of, and, and well, we were just speaking with Anna Castillo and she was saying, you know, this being accosted daily, you know, in those ways, but there's, there's all these um, points of remembrance around us. I, 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 at the same time, and yet some of them are, if not all of them, most of them deeply painful, you know, um, at the same time. Oh, yeah. If I could just add something to that too. I, I know we had a conversation before for me, it's also, um, I mean, I was born in Korea and I came here at five, but I, for me, it was definitely like, I stepped outside of my door, then I'm American, but inside my home, I am Korean. So Mm -hmm. this identity was, Again, if I talk about liminal space, I, I feel like that's all of immigrant spaces is liminal space. And, and I feel it because I never felt grounding in either place. Um, we, as Tita, like I think most immigrants sometimes have the privilege and financial privilege to be able to travel back to your homeland, perhaps, and connect mm. with your extended family. We did not. We, I, I went once as a nine-year-old, I remember. And I felt very also disconnected because mm-hmm. at that point it was really recognized that um, I didn't really have the Korean language spoken, even at nine years old, right? Nine-year-old kids told me, you're not Korean. Uh-huh. Then I come here, right? And I'm not, I know I'm not white-facing, clearly, but I don't know if I'm American necessarily, but mm-hmm. I know I'm not American in my home. So it's very complex, right? Um, but yet I want to be American. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was just, it's, it's kind of crazy. So I think that complexity is really hard. Um, and I, and I think about, there was this talk about my, my process also has been, as Tita said, um, our family was also the, the culture of it was just our family. We didn't have an extended family that came with us, mm. the community, whether, you know, we had a, like a, particularly with Koreans, there's like a church community that you can attend to. But even in that community, I felt um, as Tila has always said, there's this othering. Like I always felt othered somewhere, right? Not being part of something. Mm -hmm. Um, But within that is just sort of recognizing that um, my parents had 
I had, I've had grandparents that I don't really know, but it, as I processed it, I realized I was grieving for a lot of all of the losses that my parents had and the ancestors. And I wasn't really understanding it. Like, what is that? Can I grieve for something? Somebody had noted that, mm-hmm. uh, asked that question. Can you grieve for something that you don't really know what you've lost? And um, I think that was a really important question. And I think one can, because like you mentioned, mm-hmm. Christina, it's, there's this right cellular aspect of us that have come down from our ancestors mm-hmm. and kind of recognizing that we hold all that, um, especially if, if it's not addressed. And mm-hmm. we think of that as same with grief, right? All the grief and all the unspokenness and all of that is carried by our generation, I, I, I would say. Um, um, I think of, right, we, as we talk about, we are the bridge, but part of our, um, I think also in that grief, grief activism is also recognizing it and to hold it mm-hmm. and whether it's pain and suffering, but to also acknowledge it and honor and respect it. And then let us then reconcile with it. So we don't pass it on to the next generation. Oh, I, um, when I just have to say that when, when we had our previous conversation and you all started talking about liminal spaces, we were like, what? Like, that's a, 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 a word for us, such a recognizable word, you know, coming from, you know, I studying like Chicana feminist scholarship, like that's a big word to understand that unique experience of like you were all speaking to, um, you know, in Spanish, we say ni de aquí ni de allá, right? Like neither from here nor from there. And um, I love the talk about traveling to homeland. I mean, in my family, like Mexico is so close and I can't afford to go visit you know, I have family that I can go and see and I can't just be like, let me just pick up and go, you know, visit. It's um, and yet you see people like going on vacation, <laughs> you know, to Mexico all the time. And, you're, you know, or or, mm-hmm. you know, um, when when there's the yeah, I mean, travel is a, is a whole interesting thing. But um, a ticket to Asia is like yeah. a thousand like, at le- you know, it's it's so much money, you know, it's so so much. Yeah. And I'm the only one in my family who's ever traveled back to the Philippines, which is so interesting. And that made the difference between me thinking I have a Filipina grandmother and I'm Filipina, you know, like I'm Pinay, like it was a really big distinction there, but yeah, Yeah. there's just so much about identity. Um, but I wanted to get into, um, yeah. Because I'm sure we can talk forever about all of this. Liminality, embodiment, <laughs> like motherland. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I want to get into like, what is the, what is the real, like, what is, what are the, you talk about creating these spaces? Like, what do you do? What is it? What is the logistics of what you're doing? Um, what does that look like? I was, I was telling Christina yesterday. I was like, you know, there's a show called The Midwife, <laughs> right? Um, and Christina and I circulate a lot in, uh, birth working circles, right? Like we have a lot of friends that are birth workers. So we understand the language of doula around that. Um, and so we're like, when do you call the end of life doula? Like, <laughs> when does that happen? And when, what, what do they do? Like, what does that look like both like logistically, but also, you know, emotionally, like all of like, what does that, act, you know, that work actually look like for you all? Oh, yeah, you want to go ahead and take that? Well, yeah. Um, so the, I usually what one would expect of a, a actually an end of life doula is accompany somebody in their sort of dying process. And most most time, I would say in currently what most people understand of end of life doula is in the sort of the acute space, right? Where somebody maybe has been uh, diagnosed with a terminal Ill disease and they have so many, you know, less than six months to mm-hmm. live. And some families come at where truly when someone's um, in that really short span of time of the dying process and to support them um, and, and the families really um, to hold space for them um, and really just uh, kind of honor and respect their process. Um, I think what the challenge is why this has come up is also it, it is of us not um, sharing our thoughts of how we want to die or what do we want to hold? Um, what kind of spaces, you know, do we want to offer? Um, and um, that communication doesn't happen necessarily in this short span of time. Mm-hmm. And um, it can't be addressed really. I mean, mm-hmm. time is 
actually what is needed, but paradoxically, it's not there, right? When it's in that acute space. So um, I, Tina and I have uh, tr- been educated as end-of-life doulas, but because of the pandemic, we couldn't do the clinical aspect, which is sitting by bedside um, mm. at, that, at this point. Oh. So part of our really journey has been to really look at, we hold an end-of-life lens, and we certainly cl- uh, plan to do our clinical you know, bedside experience, um, but it has been our lived experiences that we're bringing in and knowing that, um, that the really, I, I feel that it's part of in providing information and education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done that with actually personally, my, my process has been bringing this conversation to my, uh, my aging parents. And yeah. we've done this through this through Zoom and my two older brothers. And it takes, it's a process. It takes, it takes time. It's not like you just jump in and go, I'm going to talk about death with you, or I want to know what, (laughs) I want to know what your advanced, uh, you know, directive is really. I mean, and there's Mm -hmm. been this, all this talk about like, we need to all get advanced directives done. And yes, there's this practical aspect, I think of Mm -hmm. um, paperwork that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But before really you do that, you have to have, you have to have a conversation. You have to have build an intimate relationship, right? And we don't, we don't necessarily do that. And I think that has really what's been for me, a personal entry point is, okay, I, how am I going to approach this with my elderly parents? And it's hard. It's not an easy thing. And it just starts slowly. Um, And my parents still resist. We have, I've come to where we have now every other week, we have family meetings on Zoom, as we say. (laughs) Um, And it's been really interesting because initially Mm -hmm. my mom was, particularly my mom, she doesn't speak English. So that's another challenge for me is having this conversation in very my uh, basic Korean. But Mm -hmm. I have two older brothers who do speak Korean, but having to engage Mm -hmm. with them is also another challenge, right? Because everybody's, everybody has different attachments or understanding Mm -hmm. of whatever death and the end of life care looks like. So, um, so in my own personal process, it's, it's just starting slowly the conversation, but it comes, it starts with really being curious and being mm-hmm. open-minded um, mm-hmm. and being non-judgmental. And, but that is also, I think the spaces that Tita, as you said, how, what does it look like for our space is holding these grief, grief spaces really of curiosity and holding mm-hmm. space and there's no judgment in whatever you share because we haven't again we haven't had space to be able to even share or be aware of it and I think that's the challenge because the awareness hasn't even been there and so we have to even start mm-hmm. with that right mm-hmm. and that's the same with my parents the awareness of what end of life care I'm not going to talk about it's, it's the challenge of just evoking that mm-hmm. eliciting that and just mm-hmm. sitting with them with however that feels initially and being, okay, you know, mm-hmm. let's start with that. Yeah. So it just begins that way um, in that space. So I think of us, our work is really creating these spaces that haven't existed and also role, as Tita keeps on referring, role modeling. Role yeah. modeling means we share our stories. Tita and I share our stories. We'd be vulnerable to our, the emotions that mm-hmm. we carry. Whether there it be, right? There's a whole gamut of, I think, particularly immigrants, it's like shame, guilt, I don't know, all these other things, sacrifice comes up and being vulnerable to express and to mm-hmm. manage that because we are those role models so that those who come into that space yeah. can hear our stories and go, oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I've been missing to be able to voice out. And that begins. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's- just so much grief around um, COVID. I'm feeling that, and this kind of how this care, any kind of care, a type of care, cannot be there in this moment. That's so. I feel that immensely. I also, as you're talking, I thought how we. I don't know what death is, you know, or like the presentation of birth, presentation of death. They have been very similar. They've been so unrealistic, you know, and thinking of. Um, the, the flow of both of those and how, um, and yet we can, we, we have to, you know, set aside, you know, 40 weeks for birth. Can we set aside that amount of time for 
for death or for these conversations around it as well. Um, just profound. Mm-hmm. I know when you, when you say like it starts, you know, it's, it's beyond just the physical death, but the, like having, you know, when he's talking about having meetings with your family, I'm like, Oh my gosh. You know, I think even just to talk about it with each other, you know, that's a big deal. And that's not, um, yeah, I mean, it's just me and my brother and even we have a hard time talking about my dad in it, in a way other than, oh, like silly stories, but like, like, let's really talk about how we were affected, you know, and that's really, really difficult. Um, and then my mom, I mean, my mom, I'm like, she's still young, but I do sometimes ask like, is there a plan for, you know, things? And um, um, I think because I learned, you know, like things can happen mm-hmm. at any time. So I'm always asking that, but, um, but it is a difficult. So I really appreciate you saying, you know, that acknowledging and, so, and that uh, just even making space to have a conversation is, is like the first kind of step, right? Beyond just the yeah, logistical stuff around it. Yeah, and can I, if I could just add a little bit, because when we've been in these, most people come to us and say, well, how did you start? How does that work? And I think what the hard part of is, there is no prepackaged, like, (laughs) Like, this is the question you begin with. Because, (laughs) like we said, right? And I think everybody's looking for Give us the curriculum, okay? Yeah, give us the curriculum. Quick agenda, give me the, you know, the map of how this goes. And I think that's what's hard because you're dealing with people's emotions and really meeting them (sighs) where they're at. And, um, and just, it's, that's the hard part is that, you know, the outcome is for everyone will look different. And I think the, the, Mm. the notion of what success means too, of what our successful conversation for me, it could be just part of, for my success was when we started this, and I think it was the second or third conversation um, with my mom, particularly kind of, she sat without the information and finally digested a little bit. And then she said, you know what? I think this is an important conversation that everybody should have for my mom to recognize that (laughs) was like, okay, I'm done. Okay. I can, yeah, yeah. Money. I can go home. You know? <laughs> it isn't like that, but, but that was just sort of like a opening. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, what's really hard is people wanting this like sort of package of neatly, like, how do I begin? Well, you just begin by just at, you, you have to kind of sit with it. And like you say, mm-hmm. be uncomfortable and be yeah. awkward with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, I mean, these some of my FaceTime, um, the Zooms were really awkward. It was just silent sometimes because I'd be like, <laughs> okay. And then, and then you go, okay, that's for today, that's enough. Like, even mm. just, you know, and then you come back again yeah. because it is, it is planting that seed. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it depends on each individual how that seed grows or not. But you have to, like they say, you have to keep watering it. I know these are like all metaphors that, you know, but it is keep like watering and see what happens, but it does. I think the main thing is if you yourself kind of plant that seed for yourself and how you're going to hold that space, it shifts, it shifts you. It shifts everybody in that space. It's just when you're listening to their story, you shift because you hear their stories. Just as when you, when you talk to them about, Mm. I feel this, they shift, right? There is this yeah. shifting that happens when we each when we each tell our stories of what our narratives or whatever that looks like. But we have to be honest with that. So mm-hmm. yeah. And if I could just add, um, I really believe that in terms of um, like end of life doulas, I think that there are three places in which end of life doulas can really be helpful because what we're really dealing with, and again, it's, it's like these big topics of, you know, aging, um, potentially chronic illness, if not terminal illness, um, Mm -hmm. as well as the end of life process, dying, death, survivorship, grief, Mm -hmm. big, big. So in terms of end of life doulas and and how, um, you know, there's there's help, it's that um, there's education. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's definitely education around this. And quite frankly, it's not like go read this massive book. Okay, who has time for that? <laughs> no. You know? kind of like, if I need like a surgical strike, you know, and, and let's let I this is what I need to know about. Like that's actually some like a place where end of life duels can provide education around that. 
Mm-hmm. But then there's also, I think that oftentimes, as Lillian has said, people tend to come like in an acute situation. Yeah. So in an acute situation, quite frankly, what is going on? Typically, like you've either gotten really some really bad news, your hair is on fire, emotions are running high, you are underwater, you might be exhausted. But guess what? Nobody is processing in the right way. You know, mm-hmm. there's not there's not enough space because all you're doing is you are responding to what very well may be a situation that has never occurred ever before. Yeah. And this this is the time when you're expected to make like good decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is the time when like you're mm-hmm. expected like to pull it all together. No, mm-hmm. that doesn't work like that. Come on, like I go in a road rage when I'm like in traffic, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, or or and and so in terms of end of life doulas. End of life doulas can also help besides like education and perhaps helping to set expectations, but also to help individuals and families create capacity. Yeah. Capacity to do what? Like, why is that important? Capacity to be able to show up, to be present. Yeah. Um, to be able to understand, wait a minute, you know what? These might be different options. And then create creating the capacity so that, you know, folks can actually understand, oh, there are options. This might mm-hmm. be the way I can think about this. Why? Because now I've got education. My expectations yeah. were set. So now it's not like, wow, that was a big surprise. Which mm-hmm. And then I think really um, the other thing too is that, you know, when these big things come up, I mean, there can also be with those like highly charged emotions, it might be, you know, fear comes up, maybe mm-hmm. guilt, maybe mm-hmm. denial. Oh, like who knows? Who knows? Quite frankly, what is yeah. going to show up, right? <sighs> and so, so you know, end of life doulas also just provide support. I mean, generally, it is like non-medical, emotional, psychological, social, spiritual support. But it's really like support to say, "Hey, you're not alone." Yeah, you know, and I've I've got you. And whatever it is that, you know, whatever it is that you need, we like, we've got to talk about it and the family's got to talk about it and we need mm-hmm. to create some space. And what we know, quite frankly, is that those spaces generally don't exist, you know, for, I mean, I would say universally, but certainly not for marginalized, you know, and yeah. underserved communities. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that we do uh, also in terms of grief like after acute situations, maybe, you know, it's, it's done now. Um, but we, this is out of my, my own personal experience, but um, we run a grief group right now. It's called Grief, mm. the Loss of Your Immigrant Parent. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's come about because that is definitely what I needed, you know, like two years ago. And believe yeah. me, there's nothing. Yeah nothing like that and I didn't necessarily um I didn't necessarily want like like therapy around that Mm -hmm. what I wanted was again to hear like real stories Mm -hmm. to be in community so Mm -hmm. I could understand like I'm not alone in this experience Mm -hmm. like this wacky Mm -hmm. experience like it's like other people have had you know whatever are their versions of it um but to be perhaps in as Sillian said, like an open, curious, non-judgmental space mm-hmm. where we can just share, listen, and witness. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> I just, I, I just wish you had been there. I wish I could have been like. Right? I, 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 I wish I, I at the. But I, but I was like, ah, oh, like I just like like genies. If you had just like like appeared and you could have been there, like I, oh, I would just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, when you said when you said create capacity, that is the thing, because um, you know it was like literally my father. You know, we were in the hospital. He died, and they were asking us for where to send the body, and I was like, "What the fuck? Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I, you know, it was it was so strange that I had to go into." logistical mode immediately which forced me to turn off all that other stuff and then we had to plan a funeral and then we had to invite family and then we had to think about well what would the family want in this funeral and you know and my dad was a cop and so they were calling us about the thing you know it was like 
you know, and so it was to the point where I was like at the funeral, I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want to see nobody. I'm just going to go do my eulogy and hide in a corner, which is kind of what I did. But it was like it was expected of me to somehow be holding other people's emotions, you know, and I was like, and I was pregnant at the time anyway. <laughs> so to, the idea of creating capacity that feels like Christina said, like, oh, that's what I would have needed. Somebody to just say, you know, give me space to have my emotions, um, you know, while we're doing these other things, because that becomes very difficult. And then, you know, the idea, too, of um, basically having these support uh, groups I think mm-hmm. that is something too, that's hard. You know, like I said, asking for my family to tell stories, but there was, there's always this thing of like, in my head, am I talking about my dad too much? Like mm. <laughs> feeling like, oh, I just, that's all I ever talk about. But I honestly, the truth is I don't talk about it enough. You know, I don't talk about my grief enough because I feel like I would be making other people uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. that idea, and I have thought about it, like I should probably go to like a, a support group where everybody, you know, but it's, it's hard to even make space in your own life to, to deal with those things. So uh, all of that just feels so like, yes, we need, we need this, you know, in our communities so much, you know, and we need to make it, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, destigmatize. I think that's a big thing too, is like mm-hmm. destigmatize these kinds of conversations, um, because yeah, nobody really wants to talk about it, but then mm-hmm. when it happens, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's like now we gotta deal with it. I mean, I was fortunate enough that I don't, I don't know why, but I would ask my dad like, "What do you want?" You know. So we had a very good um, idea mm-hmm. of what his wishes were, which was interesting because it was just me, my mom, and my brother who knew what his wishes were, and so we were anticipating other people having something to say about that. Like mm-hmm. he wanted to be cremated, but um, you know, in Mexican tradition, you have a body and you have an open casket and you have all, you know, and we had nothing and we were like, oh shit, people are going to say something. So we were dealing with that. Like what are other people's mm-hmm. expectations of us, but what we knew was what my dad wanted and, and having to like make sense of all of that was, um, was hard. So when you said create capacity, I was like, that's it. That's the thing. That's the thing. And not feeling so alone in those moments of, I feel like I just was like throwing like a big, like big space. I was like, I'm taking this space to be here in ceremony. Their body is, their spirit might have gone, but their body is here. I'm going to just love on this for a minute, you know, but and to feel so, to feel like in that moment, you know, and after this conversation and with Renee and, and our time, you know, that, I'm not the only one who wants to do, to, to, to make a ceremony, make this a precious, you know, to create time capacity, right. For all of that. So what a beautiful conversation to have with you. Thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, we we're yeah, we're going to wrap up, but we do want to, um, tell us where we can find you or we can find your work how we can get, how people can connect with you. Cause again, we just think that this work is so, so important. And I imagine so many people are going to, you know, resonate with this. Mm-hmm. So where can we find you all? <laughs> I don't know. I think Tina and I are like, wait, who wants to? Well, um, currently we, we have an Instagram post there and you can see some of our uh, past history. It's um, it's under Meso Community at Meso Community, um, and we are currently uh, offering a free. It's the first Sunday of each month, um, as Tita had mentioned earlier about the offering is uh, the loss of your immigrant um, parent, and that is a grief circle for that. And that's the first Sunday of each month at four p.m. Um, Pacific Standard Time. Um, we're looking to at this point. Uh, launch a cohort, actually, a, a for fee service, um, paid service uh, that we're look, we're actually in, in this moment kind of creating to hopefully support our communities that way, um, and more taking a, um, I guess, providing that capacity and that space even deeper, and having looking at some modalities to uh, what we can offer that most of our communities don't even understand what what that even looks like processing 
and even yeah. all the different various modalities that are even available, right? Again, this goes back to not knowing about resources. You don't know what you don't know. And I think mm -hmm. that is the challenge because um, we know that there are all these various um, healing processes. I, I don't like necessarily healing because I think it's just part of our life, right? And yeah. how we look at it. Um, but it is sort of that processing. So uh, we're trying to uh, have that in the coming new year with with aspects of that. Tita, I don't, I don't know if you have something else that you want to include. No, okay. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so much for for joining us and uh, having this conversation. It really feels good. It really does feel good. I love also knowing that this other creative partnership is out in the world doing um, <laughs> other, you know, a different type of healing work, and it's. Yeah, we're changing the world, you know, pairs at a time. <laughs> yes. yes, one one moment at a time. Yes, yeah. thank you. All righty. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank you so yeah. much thank for having you. us. Yeah, thank you for having us.